0: Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And guys, it's time to get real. See, sometimes when I'm thinking about what tech topic I should cover for my next episode, you know, I get really excited and inspired right away, and I just... I'm off to the races. And sometimes I struggle for the better part of an hour at some days to to figure out what I want to talk about. And and preferably, I need to pick something that I haven't talked about a billion times before, which is tricky to do when you've got 1,200 episodes. And sometimes I get an idea that I first dismiss as being totally stupid, but then I change my mind and decide I'm going to do it anyway. And sometimes those days where I come up with the dumb idea happen to coincide with the days where I've been sitting for an hour desperate to come up with a topic. And so you see where this is going. This is why today we're going to talk about fire.
1: Did somebody say fire?
0: Oh, no, God, no. Um, ladies and gentlemen, I've been blessed with a special guest today. Would you please introduce yourself to all these nice people?
1: Well, I'm Alamona Medler, and I'm a matchmaker. But I didn't quite understand what matchmaking entailed, so I'm quite good at starting fires.
0: (laughs) Yes. so um, for those who do not know, uh, I have a sordid history with the Georgia Renaissance Festival, and it was there, I believe, where my... Path first crossed with that of Alimona's, uh, the village matchmaker. And, um, I guess it's only fitting that for this episode, I have a pyro enthusiast join us for the show. So, Alamona, uh, thank you for being here. Hey, oh, thank you
1: for having me. You look quite familiar. I can't quite put my matchstick on it, but yeah, yes,
0: yeah, you see a lot of faces at the festival. I'm I'm sure there are a lot. I have one of those faces, too, like, you know, one of the ones that lots of people have Uh, because we get your Jonathan Strickland mask at the Tech Stuff store today. No, they're not really there. Okay, but we're going to talk about stuff like matches, which I understand you consider yourself somewhat of an expert on, which I find perplexing. I,
1: I am an expert on matches. It's a, it's a little uh, wooden stick thing, and then, and then you, you, you strike the end of it, and and, it, and, it, and then it goes boom, and then the pretty orange stuff comes out, and it's right. very hot.
0: It's odd to me that you would be so familiar with them because the matches as you describe them weren't available until the early 19th century, and if my math is correct, the Renaissance is before times of the 19th century.
1: My whole life has been a lie.
0: Fair enough. All right. Well, Alamona, I'm glad you could be here because I'm going to explain to you the history of matches. And if you have things you want to say or questions you want to ask, then we can, you know, really focus on that. And there's some times where I'm going to ask you a question just to see what you know about things. And when we find out the depth of your ignorance, I will then illuminate by Uh, explaining exactly what the reality of the situation is.
1: I really like the word illuminate, but I don't quite like the word
0: ignorance. Yeah, I think uh, the mansplaining part of the episode has just begun. So we're going to begin, as I said, with the history of matches. You know, you might think of it as the predecessor to the lighter. Uh, What's a lighter? Lighter than what? Okay, right.
1: What's a heavier? Is there a heavier?
0: No, okay, this is... This is how this is going to go. A lighter, a thing that produces flame uh, over and over and over again. And um, uh, yeah, you would love them. And uh, interesting thing is that the modern match and the modern lighter actually were developed around the same time. They were co-developed at around the same time. We would normally think the matches must have come much earlier, but modern matches rely very heavily on something you and I completely lack chemistry. So we're going to talk about that, but we're going to start with uh, matches. And really, when we talk about matches, you got to look all the way back to China, the country, not the type of dishes. I can see your mind working right in front of me, Alamona. I got. I
1: love the way China sounds when you
0: break it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the country of China, uh, they began to experiment using sticks dipped in sulfur and this was not the type of match that you would strike against a surface and have it ignite. Instead, it was a way of lighting something and having it burn at a controlled rate so that you could transfer the fire from one place to another. For example, from say a uh, roaring fire to a candle. You would want to be able to to move that fire around and uh, as we all know, moving fire just with your hands is a bad idea cuz it's because It's hot,
1: but it's very fun,
0: okay. All right, we're also going to stress to our listeners playing with fire is a dangerous thing,
1: but once you get past the tingling sensation,
0: okay. All right, now, Alamona, really, let's uh, let's refocus here. So, those matches don't really fit our modern description of the word, and um, they would not really play into the type of strike matches that we think of when we hear the word match, so instead. You have to go all the way up to the 17th century. So a bit late in the day for you, Alamona.
1: I guess I'd be an old woman by then. <laughs> I might be as old as 30, 40 years old.
0: That's interesting. Yeah, I guess you would definitely adhere to the philosophy that's better to burn out than to fade away. Good one. Thank you. Ha, ah,
1: ha, ha. So, ah, ah,
0: so the, in the, in the, uh, in the uh, 17th century... There was this, uh, this German alchemist, Hennig uh, Brandt. Bless you. Thank you. Uh, so he was attempting to do what many alchemists were trying to do.
1: Oh, I know what an alchemist is. That's like a scientist.
0: Not really. Uh, predecessor to science, I would argue. It's uh, like Professor Snape. Closer, I would argue, closer to Professor Snape than a scientist. Yes, uh, alchemy is all about the attempt to figure out ways to turn base metals or base materials into gold, uh, which to this day perplexes me because Alamona, just, just follow along with me here, all right? I'm going to explain to you the concept of supply and demand as well as that of value, right? Something I lack. (laughs) Oh, boy, I'm glad I didn't say that. So, gold. People ascribe great value to gold, right? Gold is valuable. It lets you buy stuff. If you amass a lot of gold, you have wealth, correct? Uh,
1: Wealth is a concept foreign to me, but
0: yes. Yes, Yes, but you understand the idea of wealth, even though you may never have possessed it yourself. Yes, I'm I'm following. Right, so... Alchemists wanted to find a way to turn other types of stuff into gold. But if you could do that, if you could turn, say, lead into gold, then you would suddenly have a surplus of gold. And one of the things, in fact, the chief thing that makes gold valuable is its scarcity. So if you've taken something that was valuable because it was scarce and you made a whole bunch more of it, what do you think happens? Lots and lots of money. Is that right? No. Okay. <laughs> you can uh, buy all the matches. All right. So you're 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 about a step behind me. Oh yes. Uh, no. If you have too much of it, if you have a lot of of this gold that was valuable because of its scarcity, it's oh. no longer scarce. It is no longer valuable. Oh yes, yes. It means that you would have way too much of it, and no. I was no, thinking
1: more of all the pretty things I could buy.
0: Yeah, uh, up until the point where you had a, a an abundance of gold on the market, in which case the value would plummet. So I never understood alchemy from that perspective. But um, let's get a dig a little deeper because boy, it gets way more weird than that. So one of the important advancements that made matches possible was the discovery of phosphorus. So phosphorus is, it's it's a naturally occurring element, but usually we wouldn't, it, it's usually bound up in other things. The less said about that, the better with you here, Alamona, but it's bound up with other things. And then if we can refine it, then we can use it uh, as a uh, component in things like matches. So Hennig-Brand discovered how to isolate phosphorus. That's not what he was trying to do, but it is what he effectively ended up doing. Uh he isolated phosphorus from urine. Wow. Yeah, uh, yeah, I thought that would blindside you. We're gonna talk about pea science. Yeah, that's right. You know, get it all out there, Alamona. So So are you saying yeah? that when when I
1: Use the privy. I'm sitting on a gold mine, or rather, a phosphorus mine. Well,
0: Hinnig well, you're certainly sitting on a phosphorus mine. Hennig Brand thought perhaps it was a gold mine. Here was his line of but thinking. But I mean, the color. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what Brand was thinking. Oh, sorry. No, you're you're on the right track. He was sitting there thinking, you know what? Pea's kind of yellow. Gold's yellow. Maybe pea is yellow because there's gold in them dar pea. So he thought, how do I get the pee away and keep the gold?
1: Alchemist was so smart back then.
0: Mm -hmm. I thought you'd think so. So here's what he did. Uh, Stop me if you heard this before. (laughs) He goes and he collects a lot of pee. Go ahead and ask me how much is a lot of pee.
1: How much is a lot of pee?
0: 1,500 gallons of the stuff.
1: How many friends did he have?
0: It was just a Super Bowl weekend. Is how what that many? Was. How many
1: close friends
0: did he have? Uh, more, fewer by the end of it than he did at the beginning of it. I'm sure.
1: It's then that I realize how few friends I have. Mm-hmm. I don't know who I could just walk up to and
0: say, "Like, hey, would you mind fill this?" Yeah, <laughs> this gallon jug. And yes, it's exactly the way I need you to to do it. That's the what you're thinking. That's what I need. So he takes all this pee. And then, of course, he puts it into a giant vat. Because, I mean, what else are you going to do with it? And then he boiled it. He boiled the pee. I know you're thinking, I've smelled the privies on a hot day at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. That's what you're thinking, isn't it, Alabama? Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a, a smell that will linger in your thoughts forever. Mm. Trust me, I, first year I did it was 1999. Still haven't forgotten. So, soup's gross. He boils it, which ends up evaporating a lot of the water out of the content of the urine. And what was left behind was described as a syrupy substance.
1: Don't put it on your pancakes.
0: No, do not. And then as the stuff was heating up, it started to glow red hot. As it cooled, it turned black and became hard.
1: If your urine turns red and then black, maybe you should go see it. There or something
0: maybe so he then takes some of the hardened black stuff and that he mix, makes- mixes it with some of the red hot glowing stuff and uh, ends up noticing that it caught fire it just combusts it bursts into flame and he didn't realize that what he had discovered was phosphorus he actually thought originally and others did too that he had come across the fabled philosopher's stone um Not that kind of stone in urine. And eventually he referred to the stuff as cold fire because he noticed that this phosphorus would glow in the dark. It wouldn't give off heat, but it would glow in the dark. Weird. So if one were to uh, refine this phosphorus further, you would eventually get to what is called white phosphorus. Sometimes it's called yellow phosphorus because it's not really white, white. Uh, This stuff is very dangerous because it ignites upon exposure to air. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, it's very much like you. So I must possess this magical thing. It wouldn't be for long. It uh, So it ignites as soon as it, it it encounters oxygen. What's happening is that the phosphorus molecules, uh, just think of pretty thoughts, Alamona. I'll be back with you in a second. Phos- uh, 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 quietly think of pretty thoughts. Phosphorus molecules have very weak molecular bonds. Uh, And oxygen, when it encounters phosphorus, breaks those molecular bonds. And then the phosphorus bonds with the oxygen in an exothermic reaction, which means it's a reaction that gives off a lot of heat. And because it gives off a lot of heat very quickly, uh, it ignites. And so you have the spontaneously combustible material, uh, white phosphorus. All right. So that would become important for matches, but we don't get to matches just yet. We're still talking about the basic components that allow matches to become a thing. We will, however, talk about matches in just a moment. But before we do that, Alamona, we're going to take a quick break to thank our sponsors. Please don't set them on fire.
1: What about a little bit?
0: Not even a little bit. Singed. No. Okay, we're we're just going to take a break. Hmm. Okay, we're back. The studio remarkably is still standing and not currently on fire. Alamona, you're still here.
1: Not for lack of trying. I
0: know. It's – thank goodness we have all those blankets. Uh, So we're going to move on. We just finished talking about pea science, which you were –
1: I was enthralled.
0: Yeah, I could tell. So we're going to move on. And now we're going to talk about a, a, a person named Jean Chancel.
1: Ooh, he sounds pretty.
0: It's a fancy dude. Jean Chancel found a way to create a match using a chemical reaction. And this is probably the most hardcore metal way of lighting a match I have ever heard about. So...
1: Isn't all metal hard?
0: Okay, not that kind of... All right. No, like like rock and roll metal. Uh, So he took a splint, a piece of wood, and he coated it in a substance called potassium chlorate. And he also put in the same, on the same mixture, some sugar Ooh. and some sticky gum. And the gum was to bind everything together. It was to hold the sugar and the potassium chlorate together on the end of the stick. And then he dipped the end of the stick into a jar of sulfuric acid. Ooh. And that caused the stick to ignite, which is, like I said, super hardcore when you're using sulfuric acid to light your matches. So here's what's going on. I want to explain to you the actual chemical process, the reaction that's happening, so that we understand how this technology works. So potassium chlorate is an effective oxidizing agent. Now, Alamona, I know you know this from personal experience, hands-on experience, but fire needs three things to be fire. Uh, And it's not not magic. Love. it's, It's not love either. You want to give one more, more, more shot? You can get maybe one of the three.
1: A spring day at the Georgia Renaissance Festival. Okay,
0: none of those three things are necessary. No, it needs fuel, it needs heat, and it needs an oxidizer. Typically, the oxidizer for most fires that we encounter is the air, oxygen. Oxygen is an oxidizer. Those three things are necessary. If you're missing any one of those three things, you cannot make fire, and if you have a fire, the fire will extinguish. So if you run out of fuel, the fire goes out, right? If you no longer have an oxidizer, the fire cannot burn anymore. If uh, if the heat is removed from the fire, it will not continuously burn. It'll the the uh, the chemical reaction that is fire will stop. So, potassium chlorate is a, a an effective oxidizing agent. The sugar is fuel. Uh, in fact, we all know sugar is fuel because if you ever had a lot of sugar. Like I suspect Alamona has had all the time. You will be very energetic uh, for at least a short while. And then potassium chlorate, when it decomposes under heat, it releases molecular oxygen. So thus you get the the oxidizing effect there. All right, so you've got everything you need mixed up there. You've got the fuel and the oxidizer there. You need to have the heat to start the reaction. Here's where the sulfuric acid comes in. When you dip this mixture of sugar, and, uh, and potassium chlorate together in the sulfuric acid, it, the acid actually acts as sort of a catalyst. It creates this exothermic chemical reaction. Again, exothermic means it's giving off a lot of heat. So now you've got the third part of that triangle, right? You've got the fuel, you have the oxidizer, you have the heat. The match catches on fire. Yay! But the only way it works, only way it works is if you have a jar of sulfuric acid. So while this was effective... It was not uh, something that a lot of people wanted because sulfuric acid is extremely reactive stuff. And um, if it touches organic material, it tends to char it, not burn it, like catch it on fire. It won't ignite, but it will char. Like if you just poured sulfuric acid on wood, the wood would char from that. So you definitely don't want to get it on yourself because you will suffer terrible injuries. Like Phantom of the Opera level injuries. So reference that I guess you wouldn't get alimona. But don't worry, I'll show it to you later. So <laughs> Yay. yeah. So, so this didn't this did not get widespread adoption because it was not practical. It was effective, but not practical. Also, the uh, ignition was so, usually pretty spectacular. <laughs> so in other words, it wasn't like a, a small flame. Like Or a small spark and then a flame. It was very bright, very loud, spontaneous combustion type flame.
1: The stick goes boom.
0: The stick goes boom. Yeah. As you did uh, so eloquently put it earlier. So I was right. Yes. In this case, you were right. So this was uh, an early example of using chemistry to ignite a fire as opposed to the old style of rubbing two sticks together kind of friction approach. Uh, Now – as I said, sulfuric acid is super-duper dangerous all on its own. And this particular reaction was really dangerous as well. It also was very smelly. The, the smoke it would give off had a, a, a foul odor. So there were a lot of downsides to this particular approach. Let's move forward to 1826. Now we have an Englishman to talk about. Uh, oh, yes. yes someone, one of my countrymen. Exactly, one of your fellow... Brits, uh, th- this English chemist was named John Walker, and he was working on this His problem. It's
1: much more boring than the other
0: two. <laughs> I'm sorry, well, that's th- that's the English for you. So he wanted to pair chemicals together so those two chemicals could burst into flame uh, with a substance like cardboard or wood that could burn more slowly. So you would get an initial burst of flame with the chemicals. That flame, that flame would then set fire to some sort of substance that could last longer. It would burn more slowly. And thus you could hold the other end as a handle. These are the components we need for a working match. We need something we can hold as a handle that's preferably not on fire, (laughs) because we're touching it. (laughs) And we have to have an end that is on fire, or that can at least ignite and then catch that end on fire. So that was the whole idea here.
1: And touching fire is...
0: Bad, Bad? yes, bad, right. right. So he was experimenting with different chemical mixtures, but he accidentally dragged a stick that was coated in these different chemical mixtures against the hearth of his fireplace and discovered that just the friction of moving this chemical-coated stick against the hearth generated enough heat to ignite the stick. So he he invented a strike-anywhere match a match that because of the chemicals that were on the end of it uh, were in the right mixture, they just needed to be heated up enough to hit ignition and then poof, burst into flame. So pretty exciting for him. Uh, he immediately saw the value of this discovery. He immediately saw the utility of it. But he also thought it was far too useful for him to make it secret. His friends were actually suggesting, hey, you should patent that. Uh, A guy named um, Faraday, very important person in science. I don't expect you to know him. So Faraday. Okay, fair enough. Faraday uh, recommended to Walker, hey, you should patent that. And he said, no, nonsense, nonsense. I'm not going to patent it because it's far too interesting and important. People should be able to do with this whatever they want. And so that allowed a guy named Samuel Jones, another Englishman.
1: Very exciting name.
0: Yeah, Sammy Jones of London, he took the exact same approach as Walker. And so he began to market his own strike anywhere matches based on the exact same formula that Walker had created. And he called them Lucifer's. Ooh. Bringer of light. That's scary. Yeah, a little little dark and and spooky despite the fact that it's also bringer of light.
1: King Henry, the leader of the church, will protect us from Lucifer, I'm sure of it.
0: Excellent. Yes. He's not a bad leader at it's all. It's a good Anglican reference. So this began around 1829. And these matches, again, could be struck on any surface and would ignite. And they were still pretty spectacular matches, like the, the burst of flame was pretty bright and violent. Yay! Uh, also smelly. Again, you identify with that. and. Essence. Yeah, and they were more than a little bit dangerous. And other chemists over the time would play with different mixtures. And some of them would even use white phosphorus. Now, you remember what I said earlier about white phosphorus, the right? The
1: golden pea phosphorus,
0: yes. This, this is the stuff that when you refine it down to white phosphorus, if it's exposed to the air, it will catch fire.
1: That's what I want for Christmas, in case you're wondering.
0: Well, they made matches out of the stuff. Yay! So you— there are actual matches that had white phosphorus. And the idea was that they had a slight coating on the outside so that it wasn't constantly exposed to air and that striking it would break that coating, expose the white phosphorus to air. It would then have this exothermic reaction I was talking about that would ignite the end of the matchstick and you would get this very bright, powerful uh, light of the match. However, it also meant that if the match heads were damaged at all and encountered the air, they would ignite spontaneously. Ooh. So typically you would have a container that was airtight to keep these matches inside because you didn't want to risk the danger of the matches going off on their own because this is all about controlled experiences with fire, Alamona, not, not just rampant fire.
1: A little fire. just so restricted.
0: I, your, your sympathies lie in different areas than my own, but uh, other chemists would play with these different approaches, trying to get it just right. And over time, there was a decision to move away from white phosphorus matches, not just because they were dangerous. They were incredibly popular, by the way. People loved the fact that you could strike these against anything. They were very convenient, but there was- Dangerous
1: or misunderstood.
0: Certainly dangerous because also it was discovered that people working in the manufacturing facilities that were making these white phosphorus matches were starting to get sick. Oh no. And they developed an illness that became known, and I am not making this up, Ooh, as Fossy Jaw. Fossy Jaw. Yeah. Would you like to know the symptoms or you want to take a guess?
1: I think that was my grandmother's name. Oh, old lady Fosse Jaw.
0: I was expecting you to say you would be wearing a bowler hat and doing jazz hands and wearing a black unitard. I don't understand that reference. That's fair. That's a that's a Fossey joke. No, actually, this was a truly terrible, terrible disease, and it was a disfiguring disease. So the exposure to phosphorus vapor would cause the bone of the lower jaw to dissolve slowly to the point where people had completely would have to have their lower jaws removed. Because if they didn't, then the the illness would progress to the point where they would experience organ failure and then die. So this is what we call a bad thing. And they would lose teeth throughout the process. They'd lose bone mass in their jaws. Their jaws would actually give off a greenish white light. In the dark, they would actually glow a bit from all the, the phosphor that they were, or phosphorus that they were absorbing. So pretty terrifying stuff. Now, at the time that this was happening, it was during the Industrial Revolution, which again, Alamona, it's uh, ahead of your time. But they get uh,
1: in trouble when the peasants talk about revolution.
0: This, this, in this case, the peasants also were uh, in trouble during the Industrial Revolution because they were being exploited terribly. So this was a time of great industry where you have these huge manufacturing facilities that are being built and labor is needed, but labor is also plentiful. There are a lot of people who are no longer farmers. They're in in search for work. So they all start looking for places where they can get employment. They start joining different uh, facilities, including matchmaking facilities. A lot of young women did this. I could work there. These were the women who were suffering from Fosse jaw, Alamona. These are not not women that. I'm just saying I'd be qualified. Well, from the industrialist point of view, these workers were disposable because if someone got sick or died or whatever, there were a hundred others who were just desperate for a job. So this was a terrible situation where people were being exploited and they were getting sick. And it all got to the point where uh, the women organized what was called the Great Match Girls Strike in 1888. Was the pun intended? It's an excellent question, but it really was like a union strike. Uh, yeah, they weren't striking that. matches.
1: I understand that. It's just, you know, sometimes a pun, a really good pun just falls into your dad.
0: This time, yes, yeah, an unintentional pun. Uh, so all 1,400 women walked out of a manufacturing company, a matchmaking company called Bryant and May in protest of conditions. Eventually, they were able to win some protections, although a lot of the white phosphorus stuff was still largely ignored because they were so popular. There was an alternative that I'm going to talk about in a second to white phosphorus, but nobody wanted those. They wanted the ones you could strike anywhere. Well, in 1906... There was an organization, a group gathering called the International Burn Convention that passed prohibitions on white phosphorus matches, and the industry as a whole migrated away from them. It took a few more years. They kept on doing it for a little while longer, and then eventually they stopped. And thus, we saw a drastic improvement in conditions for workers who were making matches. But yeah, uh, it was a pretty ironically dark time, when you look at the conditions that people had to endure in order to make these. Now, on the other hand, the demand for matches at this time was astounding because you're talking about a, a, a moment in history where people had access to things that would allow them to generate light after the sun went down. Now, Alamona, you know that when the sun goes down, it's just time to go to bed because you can't see nothing. It,
1: that's, that is true, yes. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, so, well, there was that one time where uh, I got a little excited.
0: and then uh, Yeah, well, apart from, like, conflagrations, you don't really see the,
1: much. The village went boom. Right. And it was all bright, and everyone was happy. And yeah, that explains shouting.
0: why we went from willy-nilly on the wash over to Newcastle. It was all my fault. It was actually a relocation of the Georgia Renaissance Festival. All of that is true, by the way. You can all search. The, the relocation part. I'm not so certain about the... <laughs> yeah, that part. Uh, so... This was a a change, a social change. Now we're getting into a point where people had opportunity to have lights in their own homes, whether they were, uh, you know, lanterns that had been around for ages, but now it was easier to light them because you had matches uh, or it was even stuff like gas lamps that were starting to be deployed in certain cities. So that meant that matches were really sought after. So there was a, a heavy market for them. Fortunately, there were some other smarty pants who were coming up with ideas that were alternatives to this white phosphorus approach. And I'll talk about that more in just a second. But first, let's take another quick break. All right, Alamona, you're still following me, right?
1: Uh, somewhere. I got a little bit lost along the path.
0: Yeah, and who still, are you looking for?
1: I heard there was a nice person named the Quister walking around.
0: Oh, gotcha. His, his, yeah, that's a different show. Uh, I hear he
1: dresses like me a bit.
0: E- okay, yeah. All right, so if you want to know who Alamona is talking about with the Quister, you need to listen to the podcast Ridiculous History, where the Quister shows up and uh, occasionally in in episodes and torments the hosts of that show. The hosts of that show are... Are ben Bolin and Noel Brown. Uh, like
1: I'm tormenting you? N- Match made in s- heaven. So
0: similar that it's actually making me regret Quister segments at this point. All right, so in the mid to late 19th century, different inventors were u- using stuff like lead oxide and potassium chlorate to kind of tweak matches. They were trying to make the matches burn without generating as much smelly, smoke, like, because these still smelled really bad. They're very sulfuric. Uh, they were trying to find ways so that they were quieter because they were very loud when you were striking these matches, the early ones, and with a more controlled burn. Uh, there was an Austrian uh, scientist named Anton von Schrotter who... Go back to the cool name. Yes, yes. And he used red phosphorus instead of white phosphorus, uh, and he did that in 1845 to create a more stable match one that would not be prone to spontaneous combustion. So, okay, well, you're sad, but most people meant that if you were to accidentally scratch the end of the match head, you didn't have to worry about it bursting into flame. And this is what paved the way to the modern safety match. So a safety match is a very clever invention in which the ingredients needed for combustion are not all contained within the match head itself. So you divide them. You put some of the ingredients on the match head, but you put the other ingredients on the striking surface that you're going to use to ignite the match. And this is how you make it safe, because it's not going to—even if you rub two matches together, they're lacking the ingredient that will allow them to combust. So you don't have to worry about them, like, jostling around and then setting themselves on fire. Uh, So in a modern matchbook, you can think of one half of the ingredients as being on the matchstick, the other half are on that little strip that you use when you strike the match and ignite it. And this is why uh, you don't have to, you know, freak out about those matches just like hitting the ground or something. They'll never ignite unless it just happens to be hot enough to hit their ignition temperature. Because that will still cause them to ignite. I mean, I'm sure... Georgia Renaissance. (laughs) If you've ever... It certainly feels like it gets hot enough for that. But if you ever bring, like, an unlit match close to a flame, you'll see that at some point it will burst into flame itself because you will have heated the end of that match to its ignition point.
1: It's a lot of fun.
0: But don't do that. It's dangerous. Don't listen. It's not Alamona's show. It's my show. And it's also why... Um, these matches, you can't replicate that cool move you might see in, you won't know this Alamona, but in a movie where someone like strikes a match against like the bottom of their shoe or a brick and it just bursts into flame and then they light something cool with it and then they shake the match stick out. You can't do that with safety matches unless you happen to have coated the bottom of your shoe with the other component needed to create combustion, which I guess you could do if you really wanted to. That sounds to. like an excellent idea. Uh. And there still are non-safety matches. There are still matches that will ignite if you strike them against any surface. Uh, You can still buy them. They are not made out of white phosphorus anymore. They're made out of other materials. But they they still do the same thing in that you can strike them against any surface and they will ignite uh, as long as the friction allows them to reach their ignition temperature. Uh, As for modern safety matches, they tend to have potassium chlorate as well as an oxidizing agent. Uh, Or as the oxidizing agent, I should say. And they have antimony sulfide, which sounds like a relative of yours. Oh, yeah, uh, that's
1: my cousin. Gotcha. Little antimony sulfide.
0: Right. And then the striking surface would have the coating of red phosphorus. So the red phosphorus is actually on whatever surface you're supposed to strike the match on. And so bringing them together and creating friction is enough to light the little suckers. All right, well, I'm going to do another episode where I'm going to talk more about lighters, but... I want to give you a little bit of a of a preview of that, Alimona, because this is you seem to be fascinated by the concept of a lighter. Oh yes. So I'm going to talk about the earliest thing that people refer to as a lighter, and that's going to be the close of this episode. So lighters, like I said earlier, were being developed around the same time that matches were. Uh, it's not like we got matches right and then we moved on to lighters they were independent lines of invention and innovation so the first lighter most people agree was made by a german chemist named johann wolfgang dobereiner
1: great name yeah he wins he wins for names
0: yeah so he he made numerous contributions to chemistry he it's not just the guy who made the first lighter he did lots of stuff but for our purposes the thing we want to look at is this lighter that he made, the Doberreiner Lamp. And this was an ingenious invention. It is also tricky to describe without pictures, but I'm going to try and do it. And Alamona, honestly... That's I, the only way
1: I can read books.
0: Just through the pictures? Yes. Okay, well, I'm going to paint you a word picture with my words. Ooh. But if you have questions, like, honestly, if you have trouble imagining what I'm saying, tell me, because that would tell me, oh... I should explain this a different way so that the listeners at home also understand it. So you're going to play a truly valuable service here.
1: You're welcome.
0: Okay. Well, just take it seriously. Here we go. Now, first, we're going to start imagining that you have a glass jar and you have a lid that would fit on top of that glass jar. Okay. So that's what we're starting from. The glass jar has sulfuric acid in it. That's that stuff I was talking about earlier. Super reactive. It can char, you know, skin and, and wood. Uh, My and favorite thing. Yes. You definitely don't want to touch it. So anyway, you've got this jar of sulfuric acid. Now, imagine that that you've taken the lid off of this jar and you attach to the lid a cylinder of glass, okay? It's open at either end except that you've glued one end to the bottom side of the lid of the jar, mm-hmm. all right? And now imagine that you have poked a hole in the top of the lid on the other side of that open end of the cylinder and you put a valve there, which uh, only allows air to pass through if the valve is open, but it's closed. Now, this means that if you were to put the lid on the jar, you would be pushing that cylinder down through the sulfuric acid in the jar. And because the air is trapped inside the cylinder, it will push the sulfuric acid out of the way. It will displace it. So the level of sulfuric acid will rise a bit in the jar. The cylinder inside will remain just full of air. The sulfuric acid can't come up in there. If you're having trouble imagining this, just imagine what happens if you take a straw, like a drinking straw, and you put your finger over the top of the drinking straw, and then you put it down into liquid. The liquid doesn't go up in the straw because the air pressure inside the straw keeps it out. All right. I know it destroys. Good. I'm glad that we're on the same page. Okay. So you've got this cylinder in it. It keeps the sulfuric acid out because it's airtight at the moment because the valve is shut. Now, also imagine that dangling in the center of the cylinder. So you've you've attached some form of line on the underside of the lid as well at where the cylinder at the top of the cylinder is dangling inside the cylinder Is a piece of zinc. Okay, the metal zinc. It is attached to a tether. It's dangling in the middle of this cylinder. Still, there's nothing touching anything else, right? The sulfuric acid isn't coming into contact with anything inside the cylinder. All right, now imagine you open the valve on the top of the lid. So now you've created a way for the air inside the cylinder to escape. The pressure from the sulfuric acid will push against the air inside that cylinder. It'll make some of that air escape. The sulfuric acid will start to come into where the cylinder is and actually make contact with the zinc. You close off the valve. You, you shut the valve. Valve's shut now. The sulfuric acid's going to react with that zinc, and that reaction gives off hydrogen gas. So little bubbles will form on this zinc, and the bubbles will bubble up into the interior of the cylinder, and because the valve is shut, The bubbles have nowhere to go. The bubbles start building up. That starts to push the sulfuric acid back out again because you're increasing the pressure inside the cylinder. But now it's not air, just regular air that's in that cylinder. Now it's hydrogen gas. So you've got a cylinder filled with hydrogen gas. If you open up that valve again, you'll release hydrogen gas. Okay, so that's the basic part of this lamp. The next part was another component on top of the lid, the top side, not the side that's inside the jar that holds a what they called a platinum sponge. It was a porous piece of platinum. And it's positioned in such a way to be directly across from the valve where the hydrogen can come out, all right? So when you open up the valve, hydrogen shoots out from the air pressure, and it goes across and hits this platinum sponge. When platinum is in the presence of hydrogen and oxygen... It creates a chemical reaction that's exothermic, which means it gives off heat. Hydrogen gas is extremely flammable. Ooh, then I like that. I'm sure you would. Does the phrase, oh, the humanity, mean anything to you?
1: Uh, that's what everyone screamed when, I, when it was really dark that one night, and I, and, I, and I helped.
0: Yeah, okay, well, then you're totally on board. So this means that the hydrogen gas catches fire, and you've got a lighter. Because the hydrogen from the cylinder has come out. It's hit that uh, platinum sponge. The platinum sponge has that exothermic, or it it catalyzes an exothermic reaction that then ignites the hydrogen gas that's still coming out through the valve. As long as the valve is open, this is still going. But hydrogen flames are uh, essentially invisible. You can't really see them. However, if you were to put anything within that, that section where the valve is open, it would catch fire. So if you put a match in there, it would make the match catch on fire because even though it's invisible, it's flaming. It actually is happening. It's it's burning at that moment. So you could use it to light, you know, matches or candles or whatever. I need
1: this in my life. All
0: right. And then when you would close the valve, the flame would go out because Aww. there's no more fuel coming out. Hmm. And as long as the zinc is still in contact with the sulfuric acid, it'll continue to generate more hydrogen gas. And eventually, one of two things will happen. It'll either generate enough hydrogen gas so that the gas has pushed the sulfuric acid down to a level where it's no longer in contact with the zinc because, you know, you've built up the air pressure. It's pushed, it's like blowing into a straw. It's pushed down the liquid. Um, Or the zinc will get consumed by the sulfuric acid and it'll stop because there's nothing for the sulfuric acid to dissolve anymore. So you won't you won't be generating any more hydrogen. Uh, you'll have to replace the zinc. Uh, those are the two outcomes. So it was really cool because this liner worked purely on chemistry. There was no striking. There was no sparks. There was nothing that had to ignite uh, a fuel. It was purely by generating this hydrogen gas, shooting it at platinum, having that create the chemical reaction, and then boom, you've got a flame as long as that valve is open. It was ingenious, it was also incredibly dangerous because it was a vat of sulfuric acid. Um, so it was not something that would become widely adopted or universally adopted. But it is a phenomenal invention. And there are, uh, forgive me, Alamona, there are videos on YouTube that show mm-hmm. these things working. Yeah, you just sit there and think about fiery stuff. Uh, But there are videos on YouTube if you want to look this up. They are really fascinating. And you can even see them in action and understand better the mechanisms I'm talking about that make this lighter possible. Again, that's a a Doberreiner lamp. So you should check those out because they are really cool.
1: That is what I shall name my firstborn son.
0: It does not surprise me in the slightest. Well, um, Alamona. That's Uh, me. That is I. Thank you, I You're guess. you welcome. You have been the most unique guest I've ever had on Tech Stuff, and I once had StrongBad in here.
1: Ooh, he sounds fun.
0: Yeah, he, he, he gave me a sign-off, even. It was pretty amazing. Uh, so speaking of sign-offs, guys, this wraps up this episode. In our next episode, I'll talk more about lighters and how they work and how they've evolved over time. Uh, and we'll we'll pick up from uh, the chemical Dubereiner lamp and move up to more modern ones and talk about things like how the companies came to be like Zippo. That's a name that I'm sure you find. Very, I like that name. Yeah, Especially I thought you my would. I cat that name. Well, then, we're going to wrap this up, guys. If you have any suggestions for future topics for Tech Stuff, I highly recommend you let me know by getting in touch on social media. I am on Facebook and Twitter with the handle TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon.
1: Oh, look, it's the quiz Oh, no. Yay. I'm your biggest fan.
0: Tech Stuff is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Guys, one thing I want to mention before we go, I want to thank my good friend, Shay. For joining the show as Ala Mona. Shay also has an amazing YouTube series, Books and Blue Stockings. Uh, She plays Betty Bookworm on that series. So I highly recommend you go to YouTube and search that. She does very inventive videos talking about different uh, books and different literary tropes and uh, and themes, and you should definitely check that out. There's also a series that she and I do called Age of Cinema, where we show each other movies, uh, sometimes against the other person's will, often against the other person's will. So if you want to hear more and see more from Shay, definitely go check that out. I highly recommend it.
1: And sometimes Alamona pops up.